Hi, I'm Joanna Batrell, and today I'll be reading James 4, 1 through 10. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers! <laughs> Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning that they that they say God is passionate, that the spirit has placed within you should be faithful to him. He gives us grace, generosity, as the scriptures say. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Thank you. <laughs> Do I need to preach? I think we're good. Uh, man, Joanna, that was amazing. Thank you so much for doing the reading this morning. Good morning, everybody. My name is Marshall, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at the church. If you're new, we just want to say we're glad that you're here joining us today. Uh, and we are in a series in James, as you might have guessed. Um, and uh, we're just going to keep plugging along. If I wanted to know you, like, like if I wanted to know the real you and to understand what it is that makes you tick... I'm not going to ask you, what do you know? You could know a lot of things and be educated in a bunch of different fields, but it's not really going to tell me much of who you are. I'm also not gonna ask you even what you believe. Um, all of us have lots of strong opinions and beliefs uh, that we think guide how we live, um, when in reality, these beliefs often don't touch the core of who we are. Um, as we've talked about in previous sermons in this series, we are <clears throat> all very capable of something called self-deception, thinking that we believe something, but it's not really what we live from. If I wanted to know who you are, I wouldn't ask you who you voted for, though more and more people create an identity around their politics, because you are not just a thinking thing. You are more than your thoughts or your beliefs or your vote. So if I really wanted to get to know the deepest parts of who you are, at the core of your being, this is the question that I would ask you. What do you want? What do you desire? What do you hunger for? In sort of more ancient language, what are your loves? And in some ways, the algorithm is more in touch with the deepest parts of who we are than most of our are aware of ourselves. Every like on Instagram, every purchase on Amazon, every search on Google, every question asked to Alexa, and some things that you didn't even ask Alexa, she's just listening in anyway. The algorithm takes all of this information 
all of these hints of who you are and then aggressively curates and markets to the particulars of these identifiers. And here's the thing, the, the algorithm, whatever that means, has somehow tapped into something that is profound and ancient, which is that you are what you love. Who you are is rooted in what you desire in the deepest parts of your heart. Or in the words of the great American theologian Bruce Springsteen, everybody's got a hungry heart. <laughs> that was for the boomers. I, come on, guys. That was for, this is like I'm throwing you a bone, okay? <laughs> Stay with me. And so this morning, we are continuing in our study in the book of James, which is a first century letter written by Jesus' brother to the dispersed church all over the ancient world. And in this series, we are looking to James for a fresh perspective and letting his, at times, very difficult, very heavy-handed words of the letter draw us into what we are calling a robust discipleship believing that the times that we are living in are going to require from us much more than a surface level understanding of our faith, more than a casual or superficial experience of our faith. Jesus is calling us into a deep, hearty, robust commitment to him. And so today we are, are in the fourth chapter of the letter. And in this section of scripture, as you heard from Joanna's reading, James is confronting the church's tendency toward division and fighting by going straight to the root again of our conflicts. And this morning's message really, really does boil down to our wants, our loves, our desires, and our longings. Now, growing up in church world uh, in the 90s, uh, I, for some reason or another, felt like desires were something that I was required to fight against. Like desire itself is the root of all of our sin and evil. Did anybody else feel like that at some point in your life? Some of us, okay, not alone. Don't give in to your desires. Instead, just grit your teeth and do the right thing. And it wasn't until I was an adult and started reading beyond my specific brand of church tradition that I discovered that desire isn't in itself evil. It's actually something that God has put in me, but he's put it in me to draw me to himself. Our wants, our loves, our desires, our affections are something that are meant to be cultivated and oriented towards Jesus. And that is at the very heart of what we call discipleship. As philosopher James K.A. Smith writes, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from the heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and, cre and crave a world where he is all in all. Over the course of this series, and frankly, the last several of years, you've probably noticed that I quote James K.A. Smith a lot, or Dallas Willard. There's no Dallas Willard in this sermon. It's because I'm encouraging you guys, go read these guys. Go read these books. It's important. 
Now, who we are becoming is directly connected to what we hunger and thirst for, what desire we cultivate, and what we give, what we give ourselves to. And so the rebuke from James is that all of this division and fighting that tears apart the church is actually rooted in these wrongly ordered desires. Look at James 4 with me. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The scattered Christians at this time, the scattered Jewish Christians at this time, were hounded with all kinds of strife. They were strife. They were dealing with severe persecution from Rome, and they were powerless in most of their lives. They were, there was existing class warfare within the church. The rich were using and devouring the poor, even people who they call brothers and sisters. There were rival teachers and leaders that were driven by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. There were political factions that were fighting with each other within the church about what is the way forward as we live in the world that we live in. And the word that James uses here for quarrels and fights is actually better literally translated as wars. He says, where do these wars that you are fighting come from? And then he answers his own question. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you. The word, that's the, the word for desires here is sometimes translated as passions, and the, it's the Greek word, uh, hedone, and it's the root word for hedonism, which is the belief that pleasure is the ultimate aim for the good life. Here's what James writes earlier in his books. He says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. He's saying evil desire is conceived and it gives birth to sin. And when sin has grown up, it gives birth to something else, which is death. And it mirrors what he says in chapter four. He says, as you give yourself over to your passions, to your evil desires, they grow. You're feeding them and they're developing and they're becoming bigger and stronger and greater. And these desires will manifest themselves in sin and eventually become death or quarrels or even murder is what he says. These evil desires, they're rooted in covetousness. You do not have, so you clamor for what another person possesses. And this could be anything. It's the desire for a position or a promotion that, that somebody else has. So you let bitterness toward that other person grow in your heart. It's the desire for the spouse of your friend, which becomes fantasy, becomes lust, and eventually leads to the destruction of marriages and families. It's the desire for approval and acceptance that becomes anger at the person who seems to be withholding from you. It's the desire for recognition that becomes judgment towards the one who's getting the recognition in your place. It's the desire for success that leads to, to cynicism against somebody else who is more successful than you are. What James is saying is that evil desire for pleasure, it works this misery in our lives. As we give room toward these desires, <clears throat> Our interior life, it becomes a battleground, an internal war within us. 
And as selfish pleasure becomes more dominant, it it actually fosters a self-focus that naturally diminishes the importance of other people and instead enthrones my desires, my preferences, my best life above everyone else. And so as we give more and more space in our hearts to these kind of things, we eventually shock ourselves by doing things that we previously never would have imagined possible. Murder doesn't just suddenly flare up on its own accidentally. There is a slow and a gradual dehumanizing of the other person. It's a gradual indulgence in anger and hate that eventually manifests itself in striking out toward another. Whether that striking out is online through vicious comments, uh, by cutting somebody off in a relationship, or literally by harming them physically. Adultery doesn't just suddenly happen by accident. Adultery is a seed that is sown, that slowly grows as you feed it through leering looks and private fantasy and flirting. And eventually, as the opportunity presents itself, it gives birth to unimaginable sin. This is how Jesus puts it in the Gospel of Luke. He has this really haunting line. In Luke 12, he says, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear, uh, in the ear, in the inner rooms, will be proclaimed from the roofs. And so this this text, you know, it's something that I've heard a lot growing up in church world, and I've often made the wrong assumption that that this means that God is suddenly going to expose my darkest sins for all the world to see. So watch out, beware. But no, this is actually rather about the way that we give ourselves over to sin in private and how it inevitably comes out into the light. Because whatever you give yourself to in private, as you indulge in these desires, will eventually be shouted by the rooftops by you, whether by your actual words or your actions. Whatever it is that you foster and hold on to and allow to grow in the secret place will eventually expose itself by you becoming bolder and bolder and bolder in your sin. One of the earliest stories of the Bible is of two brothers. One is a shepherd and the other is a farmer. And each of them, they bring their offering before God. And one of them is accepted while the other is rejected because of what is in his heart. And the rejected offering serves to confirm for this brother everything that he feared, all of his suspicions, And as he seethed in jealous anger, he eventually acted on what was ultimately in his heart, and he murders his younger brother. Well, we don't know if it's younger or older, but (laughs) murders his brother. A little later in the first book of, of the Bible, Genesis, this story plays itself out again with a group of 10 brothers that are sharing a jealous spirit amongst themselves against their younger brother, a man named Joseph. And these brothers, they feed their anger. They encourage each other in this anger and in this bitterness. And, and as they feed their anger, they conspire against their brother to kill him. In the end, they sell him into slavery and they lie to their father about what they had done. Sin in the private, growing and growing and growing until it takes itself out on an innocent. Later in the Bible, again, there was a king, a man named David. And instead of doing his kingly duties of fighting with his men out in war, he instead stayed home and he indulged himself by standing on his palace roof and leering at a young woman through her window in the privacy of her home as she bathed while her husband was actually out fighting David's wars. 
And after coercing her into sleeping with him, an act of power imbalance that is just gross and evil in so many ways, David eventually has this woman's husband murdered to cover up his sin. This is what James is talking about here. Sin, or desire that's fed becomes sin, and sin gives birth to death. He says, you lust and you do not have, so you murder. And so this first story, at the very beginning of Genesis, of these two brothers, one rejected and the other one accepted, one murdering the other, it plays itself out over and over again throughout the Bible. In fact, in his book, East of Eden, John Steinbeck says that this story repeats itself in every generation. And James warns us that the same sin that sought to devour Cain is at the door of each of our hearts. So we have to watch out. And then in verse four, James doubles down and he says, you adulterous, wait, hold on. You adulterous people. <laughs> Never gonna read it the same. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. How does a Christian become an enemy of God? by becoming a friend of the world. And this word for world is the word cosmos, which doesn't refer specifically to sort of the, the, the creation that we all enjoy, but is the evil world system that lies under the power of the Satan. And so people who choose to pursue pleasure and the values of the world are invariably drawn into sort of friendship with the forces of the world system, which are at best indifferent to God and more often stand as openly hostile to him. And these friendships that we make with this world system will birth in the hearts of believers the same indifferences and callousness and hostilities and actually possess the power to turn a Christian into an enemy of the God he claims to love. To quote every middle school basketball coach, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You will be shaped. You will be shaped by those you surround yourself with. You are being formed by what you give yourself to. Nothing is neutral. You will become like whatever it is that you indulge yourself in. The Apostle Paul gives a similar warning in Philippians chapter 3. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. How do we know whether we are friends of God or enemies of God? What do you desire? Like, what do you really desire? What are you living toward? What do you feast yourself on, both in public and in private? Our desires are the greatest revealers of what's in our hearts. And James recognizes that our desires, they are not just solely bent towards all good or all evil. He recognizes that our desires are at war within us, they, that they are battling on the inside. And so it's important to recognize that not all of our desires necessarily point out whether we are fundamentally good or fundamentally evil that there is sort of conflict here. As John Mark Comer says it, your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. He's saying that no one consciously sells out their birthright for a bowl of stew, 
but we unconsciously do it all the time as we live towards sort of the shallow pleasures rather than feeding the deepest longings of our souls. How are we doing? It's a little heavy, right? You guys still hanging with me? I have good news, though. Yet, we are not the only ones with desire. We are not the only ones who possess on the inside of ourselves a jealous wrestling. Look with me at verse five. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? And that is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Look look at this profound truth right here. God jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in each one of us. James here is saying that you may be burning with desire and it's raging on the inside of you, but God is burning with desire and his desire is for you. And so even when we sin by seeking our own pleasures, even when we indulge in wrong and evil desires, even when we give ourselves over to friendship with the world, we are loved beyond anything that we could ever imagine. You see, jealousy is an essential element of love. Jealousy is not fundamentally evil. Jealousy is a good part of a true love. I am jealous for the love and the affections of my children. I am jealous for the love of my wife. I burn on the inside for the exclusive intimacy between myself and Carly and will fight against anything that threatens it. And in in a similar fashion, we, the church, we, God's people, are the bride of Christ. We are his beloved. And when the Holy Spirit's true love for us, it will not tolerate our wandering affections. When we sin, God is not just bothered, he's pained. His jealousy is passionate. And this jealousy is not that we would cut off and run away from all desire and passion. His jealousy is for our desires and passions to be rightly oriented towards him. And God knows that all of us are incapable of doing this in our own strength. We cannot muster up the love that God desires from us. So how can we give him what is impossible in our own strength? Verse six, the best news in the entire book of James, I'm convinced, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. He gives us the grace that we need in order to love him. We know that we all fall woefully short of what God is inviting us to experience. We know that we cannot in our flesh, even in the core of our being, love him like we should. We can only respond to his love. And that is enough for him. One of my favorite authors, Brennan Manning, writes this in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He says, when I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. (laughs) To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. 
As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. I mean, what a relatable quote here. I can tell you that as a pastor of a church, I am a bundle of paradoxes. I have desires raging on the inside of me in every which direction all the time. At times, it makes my head spin, even just trying to comprehend what is happening in the interior of my heart. And if I put the pressure on myself that I have to somehow become a saint, I have to somehow get all of these things fixed and in order in order for me to to be truly who God has called me to be, then I miss it. But if I understand that I am one who experiences and responds to God's initiating love, then I get it. In the face of warring desires that are rooted in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that is seeking to devour the church, God rushes towards us with jealous love and an ocean of grace. There is nothing that you have ever done that cannot be overcome by the grace and the love of God. His desire for you is a consuming fire that burns away everything that could possibly keep you from him. His grace is greater than any of your weaknesses. His grace is greater than any of your burning passions. His grace is greater than anything that you could ever do to muster up resistance against him. And this grace not only saves us from sin, but it brings us into a full life with God, a life of love and joy and what the, what the, the gospel of John calls abundant or eternal life. So how do we love God? By his grace. How do we choose him? By grace. How do we surrender our will in exchange for his best? By God's grace. As St. Augustine said, God gives what he demands. There is always for the believer enough grace. Or as the Apostle John writes, In John 1, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace following grace. Grace heaped upon grace. To the point where you're overcome by this ocean of grace and he just keeps pouring it out. His grace, it overcomes our weaknesses. His grace, it overcomes our obstacles. His grace is abundant in the face of our suffering and his grace is for the impossible. He gives grace to his people so that we might love him as he jealously loves us. And this grace invites us to respond. So what is our response? Verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, it's like a hard paragraph, right? That, That really offends all of our sort of self-actualizing sensibilities. And yet, God's grace, it draws us away from our sin and into life with him through repentance. The invitation for repentance is an invitation to recognize the brokenness and the sin that we have given space to in our hearts, to step away from it and then to walk humbly towards God. 
God's grace is like a river, and it rushes to the lowest place. And as we lower ourselves in our own estimation, we become greater and greater recipients of this grace. As we are humbled, we are in a posture to receive what God wants to lavish. So how do we step towards God in humility? James says, submit to God and resist the devil. And rather than submitting ourselves to the worldly values and systems that, um, you know, that are under Satan's control that make us God's enemies, he says, no, resist that. Resist those things. Resist what is evil. And rather than resisting God's leadership and will in our lives in sin, we instead submit to his love and his grace and his will for us. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, which is an external and an internal cleansing. It's repenting of the things that we do, and it's repenting of the things that we will, or that we desire, or that we feel, or that we think. And then James has this really haunting call. He says, grieve and mourn and wail and turn your laughter to gloom and your joy to mourning. God, what a downer, right? Like, why didn't I just end my sermon with he gives more grace, close our Bibles and do an altar call? You see, God doesn't call us to mourn and weep and wail because he needs to be appeased in order to forgive. He doesn't call us to be miserable because he enjoys our misery and then it shows us, shows him that, that you know, we really get it. In fact, he would even tell us not to give space and power to the spirit of shame that seeks to keep us wallowing in our sin rather than approaching his throne of grace. Mourning over our sin is rather an invitation for us to reflect on what we are being saved from. It's an opportunity to be grieved over what we've done and the destruction that it has caused in our lives. If there was a betrayal in my marriage, um, and I came to my wife, Carly, asking her for forgiveness. If I was casual or flippant, chewing gum, looking at my phone while I'm talking to her about the sin that I had committed, it would show that I was not really sorry for what I had done. I was not really recognizing the power of my betrayal. Now, my casualness or my flippancy doesn't change anything about Carly's decision to forgive or not to forgive but her, for, her forgiveness would not be predicated on how hard I cried. That's manipulation. But her, my heart would be revealed to her and to myself based on how I approached her. And so the call to weep and mourn is not a call to show God something that he wants to see. It's an invitation for us to behold what is happening in our own hearts. Do we indulge in our sin or do we mourn over it? Do we feed our evil desires or do we grieve over them? Do we befriend the world or do we resist the power of the world? And the promise for all of us is that as we come near to God, he will come near to us. His jealous love is waiting longingly for us to turn towards him just to take a single step. And what we read in the Bible, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, is that the moment that you take a step towards God, he runs to you. The moment the first tear falls over the sin in our hearts, grace, grace rushes like a river. God is beckoning us not to a life of mourning and misery, one that is only good if it kills desire. He is drawing us out 
of the destructive, seeming pleasures that we think that we want, that are raging on the inside of us, that are warring in our hearts, and he's drawing us towards our deepest desires, which are only fully satisfied and met in him. And so my friends, the question I wanna leave us with this morning is how would you like to experience grace upon grace? How would you like to submit yourself to God and experience in your life abundant life and grace and love in Christ Jesus? Amen?